0: Do you ever not feel like doing what you're supposed to be doing? <laughs> That's how I felt today, like I didn't want to really work on a, a discourse. It was just that feeling of resistance, I noticed it and, and with it came a little heavy feeling and a uh, few thoughts of what I'd rather be doing and but then I, I that, there was a little quieting of that voice, you know, really resistance is just resistance. And as that voice quieted, just, and I allowed the resistance to present itself and appear and vanish as it does, uh, there was a thought that, um, that what we are doing, I reflected on you, and, The thought was, uh, what we are doing here is the uh, most radical social action that you can engage in in your life. And I thought of the passage from one of my favorite teachers from another tradition, uh, Sri Nisargadatta, where he said, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will continue to be the way it is. That if we truly want a peaceful, free world, there has to be be peaceful people. Peace is not something we can impose on the world. It has to start within each person. And... We look at different methods and teachings that, that will give us the key to what unleashes that love that all of us have as our capacity that helps us to come to a place of relief where we are not in a constant state of that unslakeable thirst that both Mark and I talked about, where we Find within us or find somewhere a reliable refuge, a place of rest, a place of peace. And then, as we hope we would do, as anyone who has even tasted a little bit of peace, to then give it away freely. It's just a natural overflow. And I think that that's exactly what the Buddha did he found what could be called a reliable refuge. And it turned out to be, I'll just give you the sneak preview, it turned out to be none other than the very nature of his own heart and mind. That our own intrinsic nature, primordial nature is free, open, peaceful. The very nature of the mind through which you're perceiving right now in spite of its conditioning, its fundamental nature is silent, quiet and you perhaps are starting to get a glimpse of this natural state, one way of talking about it, this natural peace, when, when in the course of your noticing there, is a, there are these little gaps after your last thought passes and before the next one comes in that space where we're just momentarily perhaps not thinking there in that space is not necessarily noise In that space is not necessarily you know a little puppeteer there's mostly quiet As one teacher said, when you, when you do, when you are momentarily free of your preoccupations, I think this is the same teacher, Nisargadatta, says, when you are temporarily free of your preoccupations, your mind becomes quiet. And if you stay in that quiet and you don't disturb it, you will discover that Your own mind, not somebody else's, is permeated with light and love. And once you've tasted that, as he puts it, you'll never be quite the same person again. But then he says, the unruly mind will break that (laughs) peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return. If the effort is sustained until all bonds and bondage is broken, grasping, thirst fades away and life becomes supremely concentrated in, the, in real time, in present time. So taking, taking us back to the night of the Buddhas being assailed by Mara, sitting under the Bodhi tree, having made that determination, having then put his hand on the earth when to kind of counteract the doubt and all the different voices that say, you know, y- y- you should just be out having fun. I mean, you should be having the perfect day. You um, should be linking as many pleasures as you can together and call yourself happy. He said, or, and you, or you don't deserve to be here. He said, the earth is my witness. He, in other words, he was going to stay in touch with the elements. Stay where he, he is. And in that process of de- making the determination to stay, he needed a lot of mental strength. And where I'm going with this is to somehow give some um, meaning perhaps to what you've been doing over and over again through the course of this retreat so far. What he did at that moment in order to accommodate all of that was presenting itself in his mind, all the obstacles, all the thoughts and images we included today in the, in the practice, is he aroused? His um, he aroused the conditions that lead to a sense of uh, what we call concentration. And when we, it's understood from the teachings, when you use your mind, this amazing mind that we have, this consciousness, the very consciousness through which you're perceiving, you can do a lot of things with it. There's a lot of useful, wonderful things to do with it. But when you take your attention and instead of putting it into a particular task like making something or instead of of performing in a particular way in a more focused way which you can do with your mind, instead the recommendation, at least in his teachings, is if you use that same attention, and you gather it and you sustain that connection with what it is that's happening right here and now. Then, along with that, your mind, if you connect and you sustain, your mind will begin to be, become suffused. You'll become f- acquainted with, move into the vicinity of. A feeling of tremendous comfort, a great sense of exhilaration, and a sense of what we call one-pointedness, and experience what is sometimes called concentration or samadhi, the unification of mind and body. Now, this is what the Buddha did in his practice. And he had been through this kind of experience before and he saw that it had tremendous benefits. It, was, it served and functioned, disconnect connect and sustain again and again. It served as a, as a means of smoothing, of quieting the usual preoccupations with what I want to happen, what I don't want, with all the worry about what hasn't happened, with all the regret and guilt and, re- and shame about what did happen or didn't, or we, we imagined happened. The pacifying of the hindrances is uh, a, a reliable result to just what you've been doing by bringing your attention here. Now, of course, in that process, those hindrances at first, as, as you've seen over these last days, they get louder. You see them more clearly. But as Mark was saying last night, that the fact that you see them, the, the light by which you see them is waxing brighter, and, they're, and they are being slowly pacified. And then you get little glimpses when they are in quiescence. They're quiet. And then you sense that, wow, I'm, I'm here and when the mind is free of those preoccupations, which is the, the fruit of all that connecting and sustaining, it becomes possible then to sense, a feel a kind of intimacy with, with life. Intimacy with yourself, intimacy with the life around you, the person today in the hall who, who in that moment where their mind wasn't preoccupied and they took a walk in the woods and saw those those mushrooms. Now, in that moment of connecting with those mushrooms, I imagine, I don't want to impose this on the person who was having such a, a moment, but there, that was a moment of, of non, you could call it non-separateness. There was just the connection of that moment, the intimacy of that moment of pure seeing. That unfiltered moment It wasn't immediately, oh, I like those mushrooms. They remind me of the mushrooms that I saw last year on retreat. And, you know, I think I'm going to try to grow mushrooms. And (laughs) and the last time I tried to grow mushrooms, it didn't work. You know, maybe beans. But this is what our habit is. But in those moments where our mind is free of its preoccupations, we have this, this kind of intimacy. And it makes possible to, to get a glimpse of, um, of peace. Remember, a peaceful world, you have to have peaceful people. And it begins a process of what I like, like to think of as deconditioning. Weakening our conditioning. That inclination of our mind toward excess stimulation. We start to almost resist, not in, a, in an aversive way, but in an intuitive way, resist anything that opposes this peace. We want to guard it because we, want, we feel the preciousness of our connection with those mushrooms or with that stand of trees. So the Buddha saw in that moment, uh, you know, as he developed concentration, so many benefits. So much sensitivity and so much deconditioning, so much healing to the body and mind when we're not so preoccupied with what I want to happen. I was thinking, we've been sharing poetry of Rumi and Hafez, and, and, and I was thinking this week, you know, how, I was meeting for the first time with, a, with an Iranian guy, a Persian guy that i have been mentoring a little bit and we were just talking about how the, the poetry of Hafez and Rumi so much bring alive the Dharma and it's just such a beautiful marriage of, the, of the, these different ancient wisdom teachings. and and now that I've just told you that, I forgot the poem that I was gonna, about to share. Oh, it was the Rumi poem where he, you know, where our usual preoccupations of what I want to happen. He says, failure is the key to the kingdom or queendom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring and finally I have no will kind of pacifies that will that we normally operate with that sometimes that un unho- that will to to get somewhere that going that I talked about the other night now of course the the will that arises from peace is the will to s- stay connected and to and to care about what we connect with i was thinking also tonight when i was thinking what i really wanted to to say and why this was such a radical social action, I was thinking about the, the teachings of Padma Sambhava, some consider the, the founder of, of uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, the Tibetan Buddhism. And he, in his opening, in his awakening, he said, "My mind and you could you could also infuse, my mind free of its preoccupations. My mind is as wide as the sky but my care for the effect of my actions is as refined as barley flour when we are free of our preoccupations and feel that sense of connection then we I don't want to do anything that would harm myself or anyone else so I don't have to think about being a caring and compassionate person. It is just the natural face of of that um, of that openness. And we begin to get a glimpse as our mind, as these hindrances become from time to time a little quieter. As Mark said last night, or intimated, we will continue to meet the hindrances throughout our our life. But it is, uh, but at, once we've tasted this quiescence, our life inclines toward. It's inevitably bound for. Um, how can I say this? It's inevitably not going to be as inclined to feed those things that cause us so much agitation, suffering. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and experienced that kind of, and before he sat under the Bodhi tree, experienced that kind of concentration, that pacifying of the hindrances, he came to the realization, though, that that experience of one-pointedness, of unification of mind, as beautiful as it is, as helpful as it is, as much as it deconditions our urge to, to keep running from ourselves, running from silence, he recognized that it in itself, because it was a changing condition, because it was a state of mind that had a certain kind of shelf life, that it wouldn't last forever. He, he saw that even that c- concentrated heart and mind was not ultimately a reliable refuge. And at the time of his life, there was no one else to tell him, no one around to tell him what to do because that was really what people were teaching because of all its benefits and beauty and comfort and exhilaration, bliss, rapture. But he saw this is not liberation, really. It's a temporary liberation with all kinds of side benefits. But this is not, this is not, this is not the, the key to unleashing that, um, that um, peace, of love. I think again of Hafez, he says, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So, the, that teaching and the Buddha realized that we, he had to maintain the light against his being. And so what did he do? He used the power of one-pointedness. He let his mind become steady and bright. He used every tool that he had, the same tools that we were using, to put his mind and body together in harmony and and he did it to such an extent that he was then able to, to feel that sense of one-pointedness. But as it said, it said in the teachings, he did not let the pleasure of that take over his mind. Instead, he applied that stillness and steadiness of mind to the, to the task of studying moment to moment what is actually happening. Because he was determined, I'm going, to fi- I'm going to pay attention until I find that, that freedom, that relief, something reliable. And no matter how much he paid attention, each thing that he noticed, as, we, as you have throughout this whole retreat, mm-hmm. you're not any different than the Buddha sitting under the bow tree have the same awake nature, capacity. And for this time, you, have, you are applying the same technique of being a Buddha and knowing the Dharma. You're knowing what it is that's happening. And everything he paid attention to studied his body. His body, just as yours did, he noticed some common characteristics to every experience that he, that he noticed. He noticed that every sensation that was felt appeared, stayed for a little bit, vanished. Appeared, disappeared. In endless varieties, processes of streaming, vibrating, pulsing, squeezing, cool, warm, hot, he saw that it was in a constant state of flux, and when he noticed that it was in a constant state of flux, he noticed not just on the macro level, he already knew that, as I talked about the other night that the that the definition of birth is the leading cause of death. He knew that in the general sense, but he saw that the that the these sensations were appearing and dying in every moment. And already his pride in, in life, he knew that it wasn't reliable to have pride in life. But then he started to see that there, it's, not, it's not so reliable to have pride in our body, to have our identity tethered to the body. Because our body is changing. It's getting old. You can't tell it not to get old. Well you can, but good luck. (laughs) This body is, as he discovered, is a selfless process. It arises and it has come together according to conditions and it lasts a certain amount of time. And so just looking very carefully he saw that there was um, there was no abiding. Everything he looked at vanished. There was no abiding entity within this span of the body. And there, this has also been borne out in science. People have accumulated a l- lots of facts about the body. And I, I'd like to share this one just to something that kind of brings it into this modern age about the the selflessness of our body. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. (laughs) Most people blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. Average person speaks about 31,500 words a day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound it and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit into an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That's from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red blood cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, (laughs) about about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose uh, 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made up from dead skin. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new head hair every two to five years. Body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. Body replaces a new skeleton skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. Radioactive isotope studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So at any given moment, parts of our body are appearing and disappearing. So if you think that you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same one you had yesterday. And this doesn't square with our usual view about ourselves. That I am the body. So the Buddha was naturally curious, seeing I'm not my I'm not my cells or this body, these changing sensations. I cannot be defined by this process that's happening. It's changing. I can't find any lasting satisfaction in this, obviously. And the whole process, as it's so obvious, is happening selflessly. It is without an ego, this body. It operates according to its own nature. Then he moved on, as we inevitably do, not in a linear way, but notice the same thing about the moods the mental states, all those visits from Mara, those temptations, those doubts, the restlessness, aversion, saw that they appeared completely unbidden. And the knowing of them moment each moment arose of itself and then they passed away. So the experience happened, the knowing of it happened, and it was gone. And a sound, the knowing of it, passed away, gone. Nowhere in that process could there be found a, a knower. Knowing itself was appearing and disappearing. But he saw that there was no I, no me, no you to be found in the moods appearing and vanishing. States of mind. And then, of course, the thoughts and images saw that they, like clouds, they have no roots, no home. Appearing, vanishing, all by themselves, unbidden. And we all know for ourselves, and Mark mentioned that we have thousands of these, and one study I've heard many years ago is that we have 65,000 thoughts that arise unbidden every day and 90% are repeats from the day before. <laughs> I don't think that's actually true but but there's a lot of repetition. So you, but yet there is some kind of distorted perception that gives rise to the belief that I am the thinker. And we've went over and over today in many different ways, recognizing, noticing, commenting on the fact that the thoughts are their own thinkers. They appear and they disappear. Without any agency, they appear and disappear. And what appears and disappears, can that be me? Can that be mine? Where is the me and where is the mine in, the, in this flow of changing conditions, changing thoughts? But for the Buddha, an interesting thing happened as he paid attention and saw that, that there was really no root to this, this changing experience other than one thing causing another. You know, we had that little conversation about intentional thoughts. But we we don't often look at what's giving rise to that intentional thought. Is there a self-giving rise to that intentional thought? Or you might even see that you hear something. You may have heard something wise said. Somebody says, put your hand to your heart. The sound hits your ear. You hear it. There's some understanding that comes. And that that understanding gives rise to maybe a pleasant feeling with the thought of it. And then the desire maybe pops into or the idea, oh, that's a good idea. That good idea then gives rise to the intention to lift the arm. And then the arm comes and then once you, the intention to lift the arm then the intention, another mental impulse comes to move the arm to the, ha- to the chest, to the heart. And in our conventional view of reality, I decided to put my hand on my heart. But if we were to really track that whole sequence of what happened, where is the I that did that? We see that everything happens according to causes and conditions depends on these processes mental and physical but where is the self in that where is the i so the buddha began to see that in seeing there's just seeing in hearing there's just hearing in smelling, there's just smelling. In tasting, there's just tasting. In feeling, there's just feeling. Thinking, there's just thinking. No me, no you, no self at all. Just what there is. That it doesn't require an identity to have this flow of experience, to have this functioning humanity. That was a little surprising to realize that that the lights were on but nobody was home sorry <laughs> couldn't resist that <laughs> but another interesting thing happened the more the attention was brought to these changing conditions the more attention was the the intention the attention came with more frequency. The effect of that increased frequency of noticing things is there. it seemed as though the, that ex- his experience of his mind, you could say, his, his consciousness, that it became brighter and brighter until it was, there was the sense that his mind was shining in its clarity. So there was this consciousness that was just shining. And so his mind began to see not only was everything coming and going by itself, but the light by which it was being known was waxing brighter and brighter. And then in a flash, he realized that the more his attention began to shift to being not just interested in what was coming and going, but interested in the nature of the mind that was knowing it. Does this make sense? And as he rested in this kind of light, as it got brighter and brighter, he kind of rested there. And he noticed everything coming and going. And he realized, wow, I am incredibly happy right now. Why am I happy? I'm happy because my mind isn't reaching for anything. It's not pushing anything away. I'm not making up any, I'm not making it very personal. I'm just here. Just open. And in a flash of insight his mind just relaxed and he understood that the reliable refuge that he had been searching for was none other than the nature of his own mind. And Mark quoted last night luminous is this mind brightly shining. And it's colored by all these things that visit but But a yogi understands it, so they cultivate their mind. Ordinary people don't usually understand that, so they get lost in that stream of mind and stuff. So there was a realization at that moment, a deep sense of realization, that the one he had imagined himself to be, having been so identified with his body, with his moods, with his thoughts, that that one, that somehow in the way that our mind frames ourselves, that seemingly is separate from everything else, that one vanished. And with the vanishing of that sense of separateness there was the vanishing of the sense of otherness. And you could say in the more conventional sense his heart opened. This is one way of talking about it. He saw that there was nothing really and no one that lived really apart from anyone else. Nisargadatta talked about how we, how we build this sense of separateness, and I'll read this passage. The stream of desire that gives birth to that sense of separateness, that gives us name and gives us our, our form, the desirable is imagined, where we want to go, who we want to become. Become the de- desirable is imagined and wanted, and manifests itself as something tangible or conceivable. We start to think about ourselves. Thus is created the world which we live, our small personal world. The real world is the real world is beyond this ordinary mind. This ordinary knowing. We only see it through the net of our ideas and desires divided into pleasure and pain, right and wrong, inner and outer. To see the universe as it is, you must step beyond the net. And yet, it is not hard to do so, for the net is full of holes. So he saw that that net was actually completely connected and it doesn't take much for us to even hearing these scientific this, these factoids about the body to recognize that we are made up of each individual here is made up of non-separate elements I know that That Ashley talked about the elements in the yoga. We talked about it the first day. This body that we call me, made up of earth, air, fire, water. How did your body come together? It came together through conditions that are non personal, non separate. Your parents, your grandparents, your grandparents grandparents that little flicker in their what that glint in their eye or what, what is it that sparkle in their eye that that moment you could say that there is no beginning to our life we are completely connected to everything and everyone that has ever happened where do we stop and the and life begin what is our beginning? Did it begin with our parents? Getting together? As the wonderful teacher Nagarjuna said, and this is why this is, it's so essential to see through this illusion of separateness. Why we keep pointing to seeing accurately the nature of our mind and our body, the nature of this world. He said, you are not the same, nor are you completely separate from that which you depend. We're here dependent on conditions having been a certain way. It's not even your fault that you're here. As our friend Wes says, you're not your fault. That you've come to get. so he says, you are not the same, nor are you different from the conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from them nor are nor are you forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching for Buddhas who care for the world. the more we melt away this illusion of separateness through simply through insight, through. Clear seeing, the more we see through the illusion of other. And the only, the only effect of that is to be like Buddhas who care for the world awake, passionate, caring, responsive. In the Tibetan tradition, they describe the the nature of our mind is is open or empty its nature is clarity and its its expression is this un this unlimited capacity to respond and we can see that when we're in a, when we're caught up in our in our preoccupations when we're caught in the little narrow ideas about ourselves that flow of that our clarity of perception, our ability to see what needs to be done and do it. And so what we're doing when we're letting go here is we're letting go of our misperceptions. Three common misperceptions that bind us to a feeling of separation. A feeling that we are the one wave that's gotten separate from the, separated from the ocean. Three misperceptions that are based on these three common characteristics that become clear when we practice. The th- first misperception is what we take that which is impermanent and changing to be solid and permanent. We tend to take that which is n- not very reliable, not really ultimately satisfying, to be, we expect it to satisfy us. Keeps us tight, keeps us searching. And we take that which is selfless, that's happening according to conditions, in some ways happening by itself, we take it to be me and mine. We self-reference. So when the Buddha sat there and and saw his own face and he couldn't find, couldn't find his identity, at least for a time. He didn't think anybody would be able to get it. But then he saw, with it, he, had, he said, there are many who just have a little dust on their eyes. And if they're pointed in the direction of, of awakening, they can see for themselves as well. So he described. The difference between what we experience moment to moment and the view that goes on in our mind. Now the view that goes on in your mind, what Mark described as papancha, the effusion of commentary that obscures the bare, as the traditional definition, that obscures the bare data of cognition. The elaborations of our mind. The elaborations of our mind, sitting quietly, a thought arises and of course if that thought is noticed it's just a thought. No root, no home, like a cloud floating through an empty sky. Inseparable from awareness, just appears and disappears. Not a problem. But when that thought goes unnoticed, unrecognized as one tibetan teacher says it spreads out into ordinary thinking and he called that the chain of delusion because in that little stream of ordinary thinking our mind moves from that that sense of selflessness of non-separateness from just simplicity in the seen, just what's seen, in the heard, just what's heard, just life unfolding, which it actually is, to a view, and, and always now, as we talked about the other night, from life unfolding, inseparable, everything moving together in, in a symphony of conditions. Not one person here, apart from the flow of life, moved by circumstances beyond our control, yet having some relative sense of, of individuality, a unique each person a unique expression of life, but not separate from life. Somehow we move from, from that symphony of connection into this little narrative, this view. I am so-and-so, it's usually based on our very individual and rich history. Our experiences, our traumas, our, our childhoods, our, our race, our gender, all those things. The story in our mind that, that becomes a version of ourselves. A version of ourselves of somebody as I talked about before, who has come from the past, who's passing through the present on my way to the future. And in most cases, that little narrative has within it a sense of, of an identity based on all that past experience that identity that has been built around uh, everything that's ever happened to us. And because that identity is dependent on thoughts, it's very fragile. And because it tends to be tethered to or hooked to our body, which is changing, very fragile and very vulnerable. Because it's, a, because it's connected to moods, thoughts, images, very fragile, very vulnerable. Consequently, to the degree that any of us lives in that, you could say, mental view of ourselves, as rich and interesting as our personal story is, to the degree that we live in that story, we're basically living in a constructed imaginary reality of somebody who fundamentally, relatively speaking, exists, but fundamentally doesn't exist. That one who you imagine yourself to be is, uh, is a mental version of you. And it's often a version of lack. It's a version of, because I've come from the past, going to the passing through the present, on my way to the future, as I talked about before, as we've all talked about before, the tendency is to, for that story, to turn the present into this place we pass through or an obstacle or a, an o- or a, the enemy. Something that we have to get through to get somewhere else. I actually stole that from Eckhart Tolle. He says that we had three ways we... Tend to relate to the present as a pass through, as an obstacle, or the enemy. This one who has come from the past, passing through the present to the future, doesn't exist. That's the one who is, who's bound up in time. So I- an example of this, and I used, it, I talked a little bit about this in one of the groups today. An example of this is the common thought in our life that reflects our life situation. So our story often reflects our life situation, what's been going on, what may be going on at another time. And we, the, a very common expression is, I am in transition. I am in transition. So when I, when I think of that, I'm in transition, I think that I've come from the past. I'm passing through this on my way to when I'm not in transition anymore. But yet, there's not one person here in real time, in simple time, in meditative time, can find the one who's in transition. That is a narrative. It's a story. It's what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, self view It is the ego, the ego that has come from the past, passing through the present on the way to the future. And it's that ego, that identity of the one who's doing that, who's the one who has to somehow figure it out and forge that trail to that future. Now, when you hear this, you may think, well, if that one who I imagine myself to be does not exist, does that mean that I don't exist? Now, of course, you exist. You exist right here. So beautifully, so uniquely. So indescribably. So without any immediate, without any evidence for lack. Completely unique, completely yourself but very different from the one who you imagine yourself to be. So this we will not I hope we do not give up our stories. They're beautiful and rich but I hope and the teachings offer hope That we can see the difference between who and what we are in truth and the version of ourselves that plays through our mind. And to begin to trust much more your immediate and direct evidence of yourself rather than the one that is referenced to the imagined past, or the imagined future. Or as James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. <laughs> because if you believe the if you believe the version that plays through your mind you will get caught, as we've been describing, in what the Buddha called bhava. I know Mark used the word, but this word bhava means becoming. Our mind, the whole orientation of the identity view is to maintain some kind of, um, to create the conditions where there will be some kind of security that something that will secure a sense of myself. But an identity, a view of myself cannot be secured because it's based on, on body changing, moods changing, thoughts changing. It fundamentally leaves us in a state of insecurity. And because we love ourselves... The tendency is to keep searching. Is to keep searching for security. Keep keep our sense of trying to find security in something that can't secure us. As Kabir said, tell me what I can do about this world I hold on to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. It just keeps feeding that, that I version. Now notice what it's like for you. You're trained to be able to do this now. Notice what it's like for you after your last thought of yourself has faded away and before the next one comes. Notice what is available to you as your natural state when you don't look ahead for a moment and you don't look back. What do you experience? when there is a momentary quieting of that idea of yourself in time? Is anything lacking? Anybody willing to say, what is your experience? After the last... Do you have... Bliss. Bliss. Nice. Anyone else? Peace. Peace. So we are not, we did not create this. All we did for a moment is is remove or see the difference between that little story that you tell yourself and that I tell myself and what my immediate experience is, that place where there is no transition. There is no becoming. There is no yesterday and there is no tomorrow. There's reality. And in that that reality, even though I function quite independently and I couldn't even have this experience if it wasn't for my individuality, in this reality, I feel no separation with you or with anything. And perhaps you have a little taste of that. So this practice is an invitation to not so much get rid of this self-illusion, these self-ideas, because we, it's very functional. We need to be able to talk about ourselves, to reflect, to be able to, to share, to talk story with each other, and to talk about our lives. And there's a beautiful intimacy that comes with that but what the what that our stories are what our stories cannot do is accurately describe our innate beauty and freedom they are in some ways insults as emerson says who you are shout so loud i can't hear what you say And in the quiet that comes after our last, when we see through that self-illusion, we can't help but see through the illusion of other and all those labels, the othering that has made so much misery in this world. Look, with the, look at our political system and that end of othering is literally a split second, a half breath away, and this is the the gift of awakening that you give to yourself by seeing the difference, seeing the difference between uh, the bird and the field guide book. Again, how did that rose? Ever give to this world all its beauty, it felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So, over the course of the the next day or so, as we keep, as we hopefully are able to open our hearts and minds and keep open to the experience that presents itself. Take note and enjoy the arising of the sense of identity. Don't try to get rid of it. It's not a problem if you notice it. See all the ways that you... Some of the unpleasant ways of self-consciousness, some of the ways that we notice that we're looking good, inflated. Notice the comparing mind. Notice how how tormenting the comparing mind is, how insecure that makes us feel. Notice the the judging mind, judging. How we construct an identity around evaluation and measurement. And let's all do what, uh, what Rumi says. He says, live in the nowhere, where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have a story, you have a name, you have a history. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere. And notice that you have eyes that judge distances. How high, how low. He says, you own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Try to notice the one that's a fearful trap. Always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one that's not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So be free and let's be quiet. Just for the next few minutes. You don't have to change postures. So wake up to what you are. May all beings see through the self illusion. May all beings see through the illusion of other. May all beings unleash their love. Thank you for your long enduring attention and thanks for your practice so far. I have, have about 20 minutes plus to just be simple, be free, notice whatever our mind does with openness and loving kindness and we'll sit again at nine and have a little chanting at the end. So thanks for your attention.